the precious coalition now. Um, no, however, the, the pre- previous co- <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was, was Gollum a minister. <laughs> <laughs> Friday, January the 28th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Derrick, Dutch News Contributing Editor and Haggis Wrestler, and with me today is Paul Peters, who this week, after an exhaustive selection process in which we considered 5,000 alternative <laughs> names, will be known as Paul Peters. <laughs> uh, yeah, with whom shall we start today, Gordon? I think we should begin with you uh, to oh, explain right. that um, this tradition of naming things by the most literal name possible, which of course surfaced again because uh, there was a very special ceremony this week. Uh, there was. Uh, our yeah. favorite sea uh, lock, uh, <laughs> yes. never imagined that we would have one, is of course the Zeesluis in Eimuiden, the sea mm-hmm. lock in Eimuiden. Um, it is the largest sea lock in the world. It was constructed, uh, yeah, in the past years, and it was an internet contest. Um, yeah, what shall we name this this thing? Um, please send in all your suggestions. Um, so there was this internet contest, and in the end, the winner of this contest was Zeesluis Eimuiden. Just yeah. name it after what it is. So. Um, yeah, this, since then it is our favorite. Uh, I think it was one of the uh, uh, nominees for the Opf of the Year last year. I think I'm I believe not it was. Yeah, sure. Um, um, yeah. But uh, this week it was officially opened by uh, King Willem Alexander in a uh, very uh, pompous ceremony. No, not at all. <laughs> he was just sitting in the control room and he pressed the button. Uh, <laughs> open sea lock and that was it that was the yes. uh, in, 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 in complete Zeesluis Amoude fashion that was that was just the opening ceremony opening it so yeah it was uh, was very nicely done yes yes uh, yeah. yeah I'd like to say I think he actually said the words open sea lock because he pressed the button as if that would yeah, as if you make it magically open. <laughs> yeah, like an open sesame yeah. uh, spell yeah, like open or something. Sesame, yeah. Exactly. yeah, I think he was yeah. speaking over the intercom to all the the boats and all the ships that were waiting for the for the sea lock to open. I think he was speaking to them because when he when he pressed uh, the open button and the the light turned uh, turned on, that you know the process was happening. You you could hear all the the the, the mist horns of all the ships uh, yeah. uh, blaring in the background. So I think he was speaking to all the ships there. Uh, yeah. But it was a very uh, yeah. Imaude-ish ceremony, I think. It was uh, perfect <laughs> yes. for Imaude. A very unceremonial ceremony exactly, in Imaude. Yeah. yeah, which is suit- suitable. Yeah, and um, yeah, well, when um, the, ne- the name of the um, Zeeslaus Imaude was chosen, uh, the, uh, yeah, the, there was a quote from uh, Infrastructure Minister Koa von Neuenhausen, who's now obviously gone off to be a lobbyist. <laughs> and she said, uh, the name Zeeslaus Imaude is exactly what it is. <laughs> And you can't yeah. argue with that, really, can oh. you? It's like oh, exactly. <laughs> uh, the thing costs um, uh, 800 million euros, and it was yeah. uh, originally planned to be 500 million. So, yeah, like uh, all yeah, these big infrastructure budgets. Yeah. Exactly. It's yeah. Uh, it's like the Binnenhof uh, uh, <laughs> for Boeing, right? It is also yeah. budgeted at 500 million, and it already exceeded uh, to almost 800 million on the very first day. So, yeah, it's... Um, uh, it's uh, yeah. it's a uh, it's a very nice piece of engineering and uh, also a very costly one, but uh, yes, yeah, and and it went over its deadline as well, didn't it? So again, it went over Naturally. time, yeah, and over budget, <laughs> as these things always do, inevitably, yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, 
but now it's finished it's uh, yes it's uh, it, it, it's a pride it's, it's a pride of the Netherlands one of the great features of a scene <laughs> see we'll in the world. also lots of people seem to be saying on uh, in, in the Dutch media did uh, they did, are they really assuming that it's going to be a tourist attraction or something I don't think it's going to be a tourist attraction no but it's one of those things what do you so, so what do you what, what your country uh, boast about in the world you know we have the world's biggest sea, sea lock which I suppose is kind of important when you're transporting a lot of things by water. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. So um, that was Eastlase I Madden. And uh, yes, speaking of things um, being transported back and forth, um, it was Burns Night this week. And uh, so what is obviously, that? Burns Night is a t- traditional Scottish ceremony um, where you celebrate the birthday of the poet Robin, Robert Burns by um, uh, drinking lots of whiskey, uh, reciting <laughs> his uh, poetry, which nobody understands, <laughs> and um, e- eating haggis. Now, obviously, there's ah. a problem with uh, with the last one because um, it's much more difficult to acquire haggis um, on this side of the North Sea uh, yeah. because of Brexit, and you're not allowed, not able to import uh, meat products so much anymore. So. Uh, but I did have a guest coming to stay over who managed to procure for me uh, a vegetarian haggis. And, um, oh, a I vegetarian one? A vegetarian haggis. Yeah, which are very good. They're made with... Because uh, ha- even the meat haggis is made with oats and uh, bits of... Random bits of sheep. But uh, the, <laughs> the vegetarian one is kind of just made... A, yeah, you can mash up just about any vegetables to, to, to look like... Um, uh, mm. yeah, to look like uh, uh, mince mutton. Um, and it seems that they're quite nice and flavoursome. Um, but how do you I imitate the, 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 the bladder? Because it's all stuffed in a bladder, right? Yeah. Yeah. What, what do you uh, use yeah, as it's bladder? Also, well, yes, originally it's all in detail, stuffed in the, in the sheep's bladder. Although these days you tend to find, for hygiene reasons, they, they tend to use plastic. Oh, okay. Kind of, yeah, kind uh, of, uh, yeah, no, yeah, kind of durable plastic that will uh, survive the oven. Which isn't very isn't vegetarian, isn't isn't it? Well, the pl- <laughs> no, the plastic, but it's more vegetarian <laughs> than an, an actual sheep stomach. Oh, so. that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true. But uh, yeah, are you going to ask me if um, uh, if, if if I manage to somehow um, by some clandestine means lay my hands on natural meat haggis this year? I just uh, l- let's assume I ask you this question. Yeah, I'm afraid um, I, I, the, 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 that will form part of Sue Gray's inquiry, and I'm not prepared to comment. <laughs> <laughs> but did you? Is it already established if you have eaten the uh, the vegetarian haggis or not? I had the vegetarian haggis. Yeah, I had uh, some of the no, vegetarian haggis. Should, no, no, deny. Th- no, you should. Oh. You shouldn't comment on that. I was ambushed. <laughs> yeah, I, I, ambush, I was ambushed by haggis. That's all I can say. <laughs> exactly. I was unaware that it was January the 25th and I was ambushed by haggis. I may, or may not have been served some haggis, but that will feed into the inquiry. Or in the criminal investigation. Yes. If, if any crime has been committed, which is something which is a matter for the police. Exactly. So yeah, um, yeah, the, and that uh, discussion of um, uh, unsavoury transactions uh, brings <laughs> us rather neatly onto the Opeth of the Week poll. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> yeah, the Opeth of the Week comes from the Binnenhof. Uh, on Monday, the cabinet held an extra meeting to discuss the new Corona relaxations. We will uh, hear about that more later in the podcast. And uh, RTL News broadcasted some footage of ministers arriving at the cabinet office. And one observant person on Twitter noticed something that looked rather strange. In the background, a suspicious 
suspicious looking person in casual clothes could be seen discreetly handing over something small to one of the minister's drivers, looking uh, remarkably like a transaction of forbidden substances. The video went totally viral and the hashtag Binnenhofleverancier was trending uh, for the entire day. Shall we explain this uh, this hashtag? Yes, we uh, should. Yeah, yeah. It's a combination between Binnenhof and yeah. Hofleverancier, and a Hofleverancier is it's kind of the Dutch equivalent of a by royal appointment. Um, yeah, exactly. Which British people understand. It's, it means you've got the you are an official supplier to the royal family. Yeah. Yeah. So that hashtag was trending for the entire day and people on Twitter started to speculate which minister ordered which type of drugs. One person joked that the new RVM models in pill form had arrived. I uh, kind of <laughs> like that joke. And some people um, uh, immediately uh, renamed Ernst Kuipers into Ernst Snuifers. Um, <laughs> and some people said, well, b- because he, re- he, he resembles Lord Voldemort a bit, yeah. who famously doesn't have a nose yes <laughs> how is that going to work so that was also part of the discussion yeah. on uh, twitter um yeah. perhaps that's how lord Voldemort lost his nose <laughs> exactly <Yeah. laughs> so started with the septum and just uh, kept going he <laughs> just kept going yeah, yeah. um yeah, and other, people's, uh, other people were not so sure because the apparent drug dealer appeared to continue uh, his way to the entrance of the cabinet office. Uh, and it was uh, Jacques Geen Stel that uh, made some calls and revealed that it wasn't drugs that was handed over, but a uh, Napoleon candy, which hmm. is quite well known in the Netherlands. It's a little piece of yeah, candy. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so, uh, and in turn, some people suggested that a Napoleonetje might be codenamed for drugs among ministers now. Right. So, yeah. so, so, yeah, so like kind of sherbet. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Auke de Vries has confiscated another 100 kilograms of uh, Napoleon in the harbour yeah, of yeah, Rotterdam Yeah, another shipment of Napoleonetjes have made, exactly. made their way into yeah. Rotterdam. Yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah at, uh, you know, one of the larger debates in the Tweede Kamer at Prinsjesdag, um, you often see a white envelope being passed around among the ministers present. And it's well known that they, are, uh, that they share drop. Um, but, you know, right. eating in the plenary chamber is actually forbidden. So they're not allowed to do it, but they mm. kind of do it in a very sneaky way. But they kind of do it, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, uh, yeah it, it, now I'm starting to wonder what is it exactly that they are sharing uh, when mm. they're passing this envelope? Yes, yeah, the mind boggles, yeah. yeah. Well, with, with, with some MPs, uh, you, you really do have to wonder what's, uh, <laughs> what they're keeping up their sleeves. Exactly. It's probably yeah. not Haggis. No, no, it's, it's, it's probably not uh, clandestine Haggis. Yeah, no, no, yeah, no, I'm not sure what's more, more outrageous, uh, 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 hypothetically uh, eating a smuggled Haggis or um, passing around drop in the, um, in the parliamentary chamber when it's expressly forbidden. Yeah, you should ask the Partij voor de Dieren about this, I think. Yeah. I, I don't they'd be in favour of Haggis somehow. No, me neither. I think they'd have a lot of commentary about it. <laughs> This week, the Netherlands opens up after lockdown to very little fanfare. The Fefe Day claims the first political resignation since the new cabinet took office, so well done to them. The tax office is once again under fire for discriminating against dual nationals, and the Feu in Amsterdam cuts its ties with the Chinese government. Who would have guessed that taking money from dictators would jeopardise your academic freedom? After nearly six weeks of lockdown, everything opened up again in the Netherlands this week to a chorus of disapproval and cries of stop the lockdown, (laughs) which I thought was a bit strange. Um, The government went further than the outbreak management team's recommendation and allowed most places to reopen again until 10 o'clock in the evening. 
That includes bars, restaurants, cafes, theatres, cinemas and museums. But strict conditions still apply and that led many business owners to complain it's effectively an extension of the lockdown. Masks will still be needed everywhere except when you're sitting down. Most venues will be limited to around one third capacity and you'll need a QR code with the added twist that vaccine certificates will only be valid if you've had your second jab no less than nine months ago or you've had your booster. So um, who exactly isn't happy with this? Well, just about everybody, um, hmm. which even though uh, they are able to open up again, which is what they've been calling for for the last uh, four weeks, uh, they say that they, they really just want to be done with all the rules now. Koninklijk Horeca in Nederland, which represents the hospitality sector, said it was happy that the sound of clinking glasses could be heard in the streets again, in but it streets? wasn't so pleased with the 10 p.m. closing time. No, the problem was was wasn't that you know you couldn't drink on the streets. The problem was that you couldn't drink indoors, right? That was yes, the problem. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but uh, yeah, uh, yeah, indeed. Or you could, but you'd have to go around a friend's house and then pretend you weren't there (laughs) because uh, you're only allowed two visitors. Exactly. Um, The nightclubs and concert venues are particularly aggrieved because they make most of their money after 10pm and, of course, they've also just been closed since July and the whole Dunson met Janssen debacle. (laughs) The organisers of the Capsalon Theatre protest, they said most theatre productions were unviable if they were only allowed to sell 30% of tickets and had to close at 10, so they called for closing time to be pushed back to 11. And so did cinema owners, because lots of films uh, are scheduled to finish after 10. And football clubs, um, who are critical of the fact that stadiums will be only one third full. So basically everyone was piling in on this, basically. Yeah, except, uh, yeah, th- shouldn't they just be happy that, you know, they can open up again and... Uh, uh, yeah, stop yeah you'd have thought and also just um, maybe just a little bit more cautious given that you know in, in the last time we had to lock down with basically because we opened everything up far too early yeah. when the infections hadn't come down far enough and then six weeks later the hospitals were full and um, we had to have a full on lockdown yeah, so you thought surely maybe a kind of a, a, a cautious partial reopening uh, just to see what the effect is on the uh, infections would be more would be wiser in the long term than what we you know what we've had so far which is kind of a yo-yo between you know release relaxing everything and then locking everything down again but didn't prime minister Margrethe explicitly say that they are taking a gamble with this decision with opening up everything again until 10 p.m he said you know we have we are dealing with this omicron variant uh, which you know we we have some sense of of how that looks like but still we don't understand 100 percent of that virus uh, yet um, yeah. so uh, deciding to open up again is a big gamble and uh, everyone should be should realize and should be aware that it could be might might be the case that within six weeks or perhaps even sooner we should we we are forced to uh, closing everything again yeah, and it's a, it is um, yeah definitely a risk people should have in mind, not least because uh, the the last couple of times we've taken this gamble, it's blown up in our faces. And um, you exactly. know, you might remember back in September they um, abolished social distancing and masks, and they relaxed nearly all the rules. The only thing that didn't happen was the nightclubs didn't reopen, but everything else reopened. There was no distancing. We had QR codes on the door, which is supposed to be a substitute for um, uh, keeping apart from people and immediately the infections started to go up again. I mean, the difference was, I guess, that that was when Delta was still the dominant variant, which was, uh, you know, which has a worse effect um, on average than Omicron. But nevertheless, I mean, to be reopening on on this scale this quickly when you you see what the infection numbers are doing, which is we have an average of nearly 60,000 a day, um, I think is opening us, yeah, it's, it's making yourself a hostage to fortune really. yeah 
And Ernst Karpers, the, uh, the fresh uh, new uh, health minister, said, I mean, having infections of 60,000 a day means that, you know, in a week you have over half a million people staying at home. And that has some real consequences for, uh, you know, going to work because, you know, you are understaffed. Yep. You are forced to be understaffed because so many people are infected. And um, he he even said, you know, we, we are opening again. You're allowed to open, but a lot of... Um, shops and uh, uh, hospitality uh, and uh, a lot of restaurants and a lot of cafes um, might not be able to open up again because so many people uh, of their staff are are infected and uh, yeah it's um, it's strange times right i mean um, yeah uh, uh, i remember a year ago when we had just a fraction of this uh, just a fraction of these uh, infection rates and yeah, we were scared to death and now we have 60,000 mm-hmm. a day. It's insane. Yeah, the, the mindset really seems to have changed. And I suppose I mean, the, 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 there is there is some uh, reasoning behind it because we've we have we've had um, the vaccines since then. I mean, a year ago, the vaccines hadn't started and so we were much more exposed generally. And now we've had two shots of vaccines and the booster. The booster seems to make a bit difference against Omicron. But, I mean, less than half of people have had the booster. And the booster campaign has actually slowed down partly because if you get infected, you have to wait at least eight yeah. weeks before you can have your, vac- you know, your second shot. And if you see a booster, you have to wait three months. Yeah. So lots of people now are, are eligible for the booster or they've booked their booster appointment. And then, of course, they, 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 they get an infection, they test positive, and they can't have their booster. And so in the last week, we saw only about 1%. They only actually added about 1% of the population to the booster total, which means that at the current rate, it's going to be into, you know, we're going to have to, have to get through till, till the summer before we have actually uh, adequate booster protection. Meanwhile, the, I mean, the, the Telegraph has published research by Rabobank and Ian Hay, which concluded the economy lost about 2 billion euros during the last lockdown. Um, and particularly, hard hit were bars, restaurants and cafes. They lost about 70% of their turnover. And clothes and shoe shops were even worse. They lost about 90%. Mm. So, yeah, yeah. The, the, there's obviously businesses are suffering economically. Um, but the, the government said it's going to extend the compensation packages. But I guess the problem is, you know, if, if a lot of, as you just said, a lot of restaurants now or shops can't reopen because their staff are off sick because they've been mm. infected with coronavirus. Now, in the past, when they were locked down by the government, they got compensated for that. But if you're just not opening because you're short-staffed, you know, yeah. you're not going to get your compensation anymore. So, hmm. yeah, yeah that's going to create another problem that. for yeah. you. Yeah. Um, but um, there was also another row about uh, 3G passes. Yes. Has returned to the stage. Uh, yes, 3G has returned. Yeah, it, 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 it's knocking on the door and <laughs> insisting on uh, uh, on on, on yeah, and, and, and barging to the front again. Um, and it, whenever 3G rears its head, there's always a big row about it. I think Mark Rutter said in Parliament uh, the, this week that he was sick to death of discussing 3G every time, or whether we should have 3G or 2G. Um, and basically, the, the opposition parties were critical because Ernst Kauper's, um uh, the feeling was he was too optimistic about 3G. Um, he said that um, if uh, if you have this test for entry system um, on the door for restaurants or uh, cinemas or theatres, then it'll uh, it, it'll reduce the infections by about 15%. Um, but that was based on some research from the TU Delft, which uh, which said that that would only work if you actually use 3G absolutely everywhere, including yeah. like in workplaces, which is not 
being proposed by the government and wouldn't be supported, I don't think, by Parliament. So the fact they're only using 3G in a very, limit, very limited way um, is, is going to mean it's not going to have such a strong effect on infections after all. Um, two, the 2G system would be more effective, but the government's given up on that because uh, they know that, um, again, um, parties in Parliament, um, and the opposition against it, but also uh, the Christian Uni, which is yeah. um, a coalition partner, is also against 2G, which would mean you, you can't enter um, places with a positive so with a negative coronavirus test you have to be vaccinated or recovered and that leaves one other option which is 1g which would just mean everyone tests on the door which actually would be far more effective than any 2g or 3g but the problem is you need to have a huge huge yeah. um, amount of uh, tests in um, in reserve and we don't have that so no. that's not an option either as i experienced uh, a couple of weeks ago when i uh, or actually last week when I desperately wanted to uh, have a uh, corona test and I um, yeah was searching for two almost three days uh, in order to get one so yeah yeah um, and uh, th- there's also some better news for people who are traveling right yeah for traveling um, it's now going to be easier to travel uh, to the Netherlands because if, you, if as long as you've had your booster jab because then from February the 2nd you won't have to quarantine even if you're coming back from a very high risk country and at the moment that includes the UK the USA Canada and South Africa uh, people who've only had two vaccines or no vaccines will still have to quarantine for 10 days uh, unless they can claim one of the 562 different types of exemption um, such as necessary family visits or you're going to a funeral or you're, you do an essential job yeah, so uh, we just mentioned that there are 65,000 uh, positive infections a day uh, in the past weeks, but uh, it might be even bigger than that, right? Yes, uh, Ernst Kapp, as I said at the press conference, uh, well, the previous press conference, which was when they did uh, a very uh, much smaller reopening, um, uh, he said they expected the infections to hit 80,000 just from as a result of that, and now he revised it at this week's press conference up to 100,000 mm. tests, positive tests a day, 100,000. But then um, Jaap van Dissel came in in the technical briefing this week and he warned that those models were based on the previous shutdown we had before the lockdown, if everyone can, if you're still following me, which is when everything <laughs> closed at five o'clock. So everything was shut up, closed at five, opened at five in the morning. So you had a 12-hour stint when everything was shut. But now, of course, um, things are going to be open for another five hours in the evening. So yeah. that would suggest that the case is going to be a lot higher than 100,000 a day. Um, but we don't really know because at the moment uh, so many people are going for tests and that, um, or booking tests that the KK Day stations can't, cut, can't uh, actually test them all, as you found out uh, the other week. Yeah. And the labs who process the tests can't keep up either. So the RVM now est- estimates it's got a backlog of around 100,000 tests just in the last two weeks. So that's people who've taken a test, but they don't have the result. So I'm not quite sure what happens because you're supposed to quarantine until you get your test result, right? Yeah. Um, but if your test result doesn't come in for two weeks... What are you supposed to do? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. and also more than 47% of tests are positive at the moment. So, I mean, who knows what the actual <laughs> infection level is? Yeah, that positive... It's kind of Russian uh, roulette, really. Yeah, <laughs> that, yeah. Po- that positive uh, yeah, percentage is just rising every week. I mean, uh, uh, two weeks ago, we were already mesmerized by the idea that if you are standing in line for your test and either you or the person behind or in front of you is tested positive but now it's uh, even worse than that i mean it's yeah. ha- almost half yeah it's uh, yeah basically every, yeah, every other person at a testing station will have the virus so yeah you're actually i think better now to just kind of stay home and take a self-test because yeah, uh, yeah <laughs> you're yeah. quite high risk of actually catching the virus um when you go for your test now 
yeah but uh yeah basically the the decision to reopen is uh, kind of based on the assumption that omicron's a milder infection and people have got their booster shots but as we said i mean most people still a majority of people don't have a booster jab um and although omicron is a milder infection we're sort of seeing a yeah, kind of an upturn in the number of yeah. patients in hospital now and yeah again we, we've made these assumptions before and they've tended to be over optimistic there's a real kind of trend of just not really being cautious not learning from previous mistakes either and yeah. If, if, yeah, every time things start to look better everyone forgets how we got to this position in the first place which was by opening up too quickly the last time and then you know all of a sudden there's a whole rush and it was i think you know the, the, the push is now coming from the commercial sector to open everything up and to hell with how many people get sick or infected or die whereas you kind of think that you know what we're kind of missing really is just any kind of long-term plan for firstly how you get to the end of yeah this covid season which uh, on the evidence of the last couple of years is going to be in april and then also what you do after the summer when yeah. inevitably you're going to get uh, an increase in infections again at least now we have a health minister that uh, says he's health. going to work on a on a uh, on a long-term plan. Uh, that was what he said when he was uh, sworn in. So uh, yeah, m- m- perhaps we will finally get a long-term plan because you know it's been uh, it's been long enough without one. Yeah, yeah. And finally, just one 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 final note is that there's some uh, better news today as well because the European Medicines Agency has uh, approved the um, Pfizer's anti-coronavirus medicine. So a pill, isn't it? It's a pill, yes. Perhaps uh, that per- was perhaps, perhaps it was the 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 corona pill that was uh, yeah. handed to this uh, to this uh, minister's driver. Yeah, yeah. They, they were doing live trials. Yeah, in, at I the think Binnenhof. so. Yeah, that would be good. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe he's going to pass it on to Thierry. I don't know. Maybe someone just slide slide it into his drink. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so, so that's, that's good news. We yeah, don't forget, as well as the vaccines, we also just need you know better medicine to treat people who do fall sick with coronavirus. Yeah. Uh, so the fact we've got uh, yeah, there's now an anti yeah <laughs> an effective drug that's been tested and approved. Uh, it's it's got to be good news. Sumaya Sala has resigned her position as chair of an internal VVD commission that advises the party and its politicians on the topic of terrorism and de-radicalization, but she remains a party member. Her position came under fire in the past weeks when it was highlighted that Sala used to be a member of the Hofstadt Group, a radical Islamic terrorist cell based in The Hague. Yeah, that's what what the names come from, right? I never realized this, but the nickname yeah. of The Hague is Hofstadt, and yeah, that's yes. why it was called the Hofstadt Group. Yeah. Um, this group was suspected of planning multiple terrorist attacks in the Netherlands in the early tw- 2000s. Uh, Theo van Gogh, an Islam critical director and columnist, was murdered by a member of the group in broad daylight in 2004. Um, Salah was convicted for possession of a forbidden weapon and membership of a terrorist organization. She served three years in prison. Uh, and initially, she was also convicted for planning a terrorist attack against PVV leader Geert Wilders and other politicians, but a court of appeal ruled that that couldn't be proven. Um, after her release in 2008, she started studying political science in Leiden and became involved in combating radicalism. And after she became a member of the VVD party in 2011, party uh, dinosaur and uh, <laughs> yeah, he is uh, yeah very, very uh, uh, highly esteemed member of the VVD yeah. party. I think he was also... A, le- a faction leader in the Tweede Kamer at some point. Um, he took her under his wing and became her mentor. Uh, and in a statement on Thursday, Salah wrote she deeply regretted the decision she made when she was young uh, and uh, publicly apologized for it. 
Hmm. So this all started with Geert Wilders stirring things up uh, during a debate last week. Yeah, that's right. Uh, in the debate on the um, uh, new coalition agreement, uh, yeah, he, he started to talk about her and he pointed out that uh, the VVD employs a, uh, a convicted terrorist. Uh, mm. And he also mentioned that he felt unsafe in Parliament because, you know, she could all at any point walk in and, uh, uh, yeah, given her history and given... Yeah, Geert Wilders is uh, uh, was threat. Yeah, his life was threatened by the Hofstad group, and ever since uh, he received around the clock police protection. Right, I think it even started with uh, uh, threats coming from this group. So yeah, mm. I think he he has a point if he feels very uncomfortable with this. But it's not that she can walk in the parliament building anytime because she's not employed by the VVD. She doesn't work for the party in the Tweede Kamer. Um, I, I, ca- I can understand uh, uh, how he feels uncomfortable with it, but still his, his decision yeah. to exploit this politically is is uh, is a different story. And um, Yeah, exactly. He, he was kind of picking this up and running with it, wasn't he? He was, he was using it to score points um, against uh, the Faith of Day and against the coalition. Um, and as you say, I mean, she, she, she was uh, she was she was put on trial. She served a three-year sentence. She's kind of served her time. And um, uh, I've, a lot of people argue that people deserve to be given second chances. And she was she was a member of the committee to actually advise on um, on radicalization because she had experience of it personally. And that that, that was a point of bringing her Which under is, the um, uh, uh, Bolgestein's wing. Um, yeah. Yeah, and Bolgestein yeah. is, as I point out, he's not he's not a uh, just a random person in the VVD party. He is like yeah. uh, the most prominent member of that party. So um, yeah, um, um, and he's also uh, not a kind of he's not by instinct a kind of a guy who goes around hugging radical Muslims. You know, he's he's, he's made some very outspoken statements against immigration in his career. I mean, that was one of yeah. he, even before Wilders was around. Uh, but Bolgestein was a guy I seem to remember in the 1990s who was saying that the Netherlands was too small for all the people who were trying to come into the country. Country. So this is not a guy who's, you know, who's got to, who, who, who's some uh, um, uh, person who wants to open the borders to terrorists by anyone's uh, anyone's standards. I have a small fun fact. Um, uh-huh. Do you know which certain politician was also a protege of uh, Fritz Bolkestein in the past? Um, was it possibly? Geert Wilders. It was. <laughs> Isn't that just a uh, uh, ironic... Uh, ironic, uh, ironic situation. Ironic yes. situation, isn't it? Yeah. There, there, so. there's, there's a, a well-known clip, isn't there, of uh, Geert Wilders on a TV talk show about 15 when he was still in the Fefe Day, talking about Islam and saying that um, you know that, that there's nothing wrong with the yeah. Islamic religion. And then you see, whenever that's shown, uh, when he's confronted with it, he says, "Oh, I, I was, I, I was uh, the, that was when I was under Bolkestein's influence. I've changed exactly. my mind since then." So yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I think uh, the 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 Fefe Day party really. Uh, yeah, behaved in a shameful way because uh, because uh, Salah, she was a member of the VVD party. She was a protege of of of, uh, of Bolkestein, as I said. She you know has been walking around in the party for more than 10 years uh, it wasn't mm. that it was a secret or anything that it was just revealed that she was a convicted terrorist everyone knew that this was you know she was very open about it uh, it apparently was never a problem until Geert Wilders started to make a point out of it and I think yeah. it is um, very uh, worrying that a politician of a different party can dictate how 
um, a political party should deal with its members. I, th I, yeah. I think that's they are they are heading in 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 in, the, in a very wrong way if they really do this. And it all started with um, Sophie Hermans, the faction leader in the Tweede Kamer. Uh, she wasn't really defending um, Sala at the uh, debate last week, but w she was also a guest on a talk show. Goedemorgen. Uh, BNL op zondag, on Sunday, and she all of a sudden said that she had a very awkward feeling with, you know, a convicted terrorist now serving as a internal advisory committee member on deradicalization. Even though I have to say, if there's anyone who is a expert on this topic, it is a deradicalized terrorist. Exactly. That's a different story. But I think, you know, you can debate about how desirable it is that a convicted terrorist is active within your own party. You can discuss that. It wasn't a problem in the past 10 years, but that's okay. But that they really allow a different politician from a different party to dictate how they should deal with its members. I think that's very, that's just very shameful. Yeah, it is, and as I say, I was, I was pretty dismayed by the way that um, uh, Wilders raised this uh, it, it, uh, this issue in uh, at the start of the debate, and it kind of overshadowed the entire debate on the coalition program. But also, I was just really, really unimpressed with the way that uh, Sophie Hermans, particularly, and, and the Favourite Day in general, um, handled it. Because you know, I mean, the, the, Samaya Sala wasn't there to defend herself; she depended no. on uh, the Favourite Day um, party members in Parliament actually uh, stand, showing a bit of backbone and standing up for her and saying this is a, somebody who has, has a proven track record who's been working for our party for 10 years never caused any trouble d d done a lot to educate us it's on very intelligent uh, the dangers of radicalisation uh, yeah. yeah. um, and now you're just scoring you know, when Kirbal Wilder stands up scores cheap political points not just against um, uh, Samaya Sal I remember but also against her sister because she's a member of the, the of parliament for DCC6 and uh, just uh, throws around insults um, about uh, about people wearing headscarves in Parliament. It's all just really to play yeah. to his base. And it's just he's just bullying, basically. He's yeah. just standing up in Parliament, using the parliamentary chamber to bully a couple of people, to bully a woman who's not there to defend herself. And the Fefe Day, when they had the chance to stand up uh, for her, they just crumbled. Yeah. And they said, yeah, sure, they just gave in to Wilders' xenophobic, Islamophobic bullying, and I think it's pretty, pretty disgraceful, really. They, yeah. they, they should have, uh, they, they, they shouldn't have had any truck. Uh, and very unlike the Favorite Day party, because they usually defend anyone of the party, you know, until the very last <laughs> moment. Uh, yeah, and it, until time comes when they actually have to resign their ministerial position. Or, or yeah, or, or, exactly. Or, yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, it's uh, no, it wasn't a good look for the Favorite Day party, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So there we are. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, some some of the things that uh, Wilders said just just weren't true. I mean, he, he said that uh, you know that uh, she was a member of the Hofstadt group that wants to kill him, but the Hofstadt group disbanded years ago. I mean, after the criminal trial, I mean, it doesn't exist, and all its members have de-radicalized um, and uh, gone off to do other things. So you know, the actual direct threat from from that group just doesn't exist. But I Wilders is very fond of yeah. playing the victim and saying there are people walking about close to me that want me to be dead. I mean, he's, he's released a biography called Marked for Death. Um, yeah, this is all part of his shtick that, yeah. uh, that you know he did that any minute someone's going to come along around the corner and, um, and and put a bullet in his head and it's just a kind of macabre fantasy but again you know he, he used it to uh, to bully a, uh, a party worker and he, he he got what he wanted so he'll do it again yeah exactly yeah that's uh, that's a guarantee
Dozens of people were included on the tax officer's list of suspected fraudsters on the basis of their nationality or their appearance. That's one of the conclusions of the latest report by PwC into what was known as a Tuslachen affair, in which families had their childcare allowances cancelled after officials wrongly accused them of fraud. The accountancy firm said that 11% of the case files they studied included comments about people's ethnic background or dual nationality, and also confidential medical information. The privacy watchdog, AP, has already fined the tax office 2.7 million euros for keeping a legal list of people's second nationalities. It's also criticised the Council of State for failing to notice that the dual nationals were disproportionately affected when they tried to appeal against the decisions. The FSV list, as it was known to officials, was used between 2013 and 2020 and included the names of 240,000 people, including underage children. The tax office also shared lists of names and social security numbers with other agencies, such as the benefits payment agency UVV, the, the Justice Department, the Social Security Bank, local authorities and the Justice Department. Tax Minister Marnix von Rey said the conclusions of the report were tough and showed there were fundamental shortcomings in the FSV system. Yeah, that's a pretty understatement. But what surprises me about this is that the tax office was fined. How does that work? They just have to pay back in. Uh, yeah, for, uh, yeah. <laughs> they probably have to come to like a um, uh, a payment regulation or something, and uh, <laughs> they have to pay it, pay, it, pay it back over two years. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe we have to go into uh, the debt restructuring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's our money that's, you know, being paid then, right? It's, it's yeah. not that the tax office has its own revenue stream or something, <laughs> right? So, yeah, it's uh, yeah, strange. Yeah, no, I, I guess it, um, it's supposed to act as a deterrent and it's, uh, you know, it's a sanction that uh, shows that, that, that it's a statement that this is not yeah. acceptable. And, it's more uh, symbolic you know, than it actually. They shouldn't do it yeah. again. It's more symbolic than anything yeah. else, yeah. Yeah, and uh, it was uh, just came out that the uh, parliamentary inquiry uh, about the Tuslag affair will start within a year. Um, right. It's um, uh, one of the many, well, we, I think we have three or four parliamentary inquiries coming up, and it is wildly expected that uh, it's going to be very tough for the current cabinet, uh, especially because, you know, the current cabinet or the cur current coalition parties are also the same as the previous coalition parties so mm. yeah it's going to be really tough for them and uh yeah this is just uh uh yeah probably the toughest that's coming up i think yeah yeah as you say there's this parliamentary inquiry there's also an inquiry into the honing of gas um coming up as well i think that's later this year so yeah, yeah quite a few handling of the coronavirus and uh and the handling yeah. the coronavirus uh, pandemic as well that will uh, there will certainly be an inquiry into that uh, once we actually get through the <laughs> pandemic whenever that is whenever that is at yeah. the moment, <laughs> moment they can't they can't put a committee together because uh, too many of them are, uh, are at home <laughs> recovering from coronavirus probably yeah or at home or or at a uh, uh, napoleon candy uh, uh, rehab center <laughs> yes yeah who knows it's that time when we warmly thank our patrons, whose generous support allows us to keep on making this podcast and bring you all the latest news, political rows, pandemic rule changes and ophefs. As a token of our gratitude, we give all our new patrons a shout out on the podcast, as well as the opportunity to ask us a question. This week, we welcome one new patron, Christian Fuschlin, uh, who didn't ask us a question and neither did anybody else this week, but uh, thank you very much indeed, Christian, for your support. Thank you. Yeah. Danke schön. If you'd like... Sorry? Dankeschön. Dankeschön, yes. Uh, yeah, I'm, Is he I'm, German or not? That's where I'd put my money as well, actually, <laughs> I think. Or perhaps Austrian or Swiss. I don't actually know. 
But uh, get in touch with Christian, ask a question, and uh, let us know. If you'd like to become a sponsor of the Dutch News Podcast for as little as one euro, one dollar, or a pound a day, go to www.patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash Dutch News NL. We accept any currencies. Pretty much. Apart from Bitcoin. We're not taking yeah. or nope. Ecuadorian Bitcoin. The compulsory five-day pre-abortion wait will very likely be abolished as MPs debated a draft bill initiated by D66 on Thursday. And actually debating as we are recording, uh, for once we mm. are recording on Thursday, so yeah. we don't know how it ended, but uh, yeah, there are some expectations. Um, yeah. The wait currently applies to all women who are more than 16 days pregnant and want an abortion. It was included in Dutch abortion law when the practice became legal in the early 1980s and has been a controversial one ever since. A motion by PvdA and GroenLinks to abolish the five-day reflection period, as it is called, uh, passed in February last year, despite the opposition of the three Christian parties. However, the previous coalition accord stipulated that some medical issues with ethical implications would not be tabled and there was no follow-up. The new accord says that MPs do not have to vote with their parties, but can follow their conscience when it comes to such issues, clearing the way for a free vote. The uh, CDA and ChristenUnie are in favor of keeping the weight because they say women need to take the time to think about their decision but this is a sister parliamentary leader Jan Paternotte uh, who is new by the way did we already mention that I don't think we did right whether well, that he's newly appointed parliamentary leader no don't yeah, think we did for sister. yeah yeah yes it was um, Rob Yesman before but now he's uh, gone off to be environment minister yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this is yeah. also has a new faction leader in the Tweede Kamer. That's a side yeah. uh, news item for you yeah. there. Um, and he said that women can take the time with their doctors if they so wish, but that most women will have thought about it already. He called the waiting time wrong, paternalistic and obsolete. VVD, PvdA, GroenLinks and SP, who have sev- six, 75 votes in total, are expected to support the bill. And the rate of abortions compared to live uh, pregnancies in the Netherlands is one of the lowest in the world at uh, 8.8 per 1,000 in 2018. Most procedures involved women under the age of 30 and are carried out before the seventh week of pregnancy. MPs also voted to put contraceptives, including the birth control pill, back in the basic health insurance package as part of the February motion. And uh, this will be on next week's parliamentary agenda and is also expected to gain majority support. Yeah, that's another thing that's been the subject of a very long-running campaign, doesn't it, to put contraceptives back in the basic health insurance. Yeah. Uh, because uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of women are saying, "Well, why should we have to pay uh, for, for birth control out of our own money when you know it, it takes two to tango?" Surely, yeah. everyone everyone <laughs> should be paying for contraception. So, do you think this, so? Is this bill going to cause um, any kind of um, uh, disputes between the coalition partners? Do you think? Yeah, probably not, because, you know, the the coalition parties have discussed these so-called medical ethical issues at length during the formation. Um, I assume that they already ironed out every obstacle that was on the, on the road. So, yeah, I don't think this doesn't come as a surprise issue or something. Um, remember, at some point uh, during the formation, it was even leaked that the negotiations could fail on this issue. But, uh, yeah... They, uh, uh, in the end, they they came out with an accord. So yeah, I everything uh, suggests that they uh, 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 the, the Christian parties are okay with this. Um, yeah. The Christian Uni and uh, to a lesser extent CDA are clearly not happy with the bill, and they 
uh, are very open about this, but at least they can say that the responsible ministers that will have to execute the law, uh, if accepted, are not from their party. So yeah, they uh, they are not losing their uh, face or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, as you say, the, the, the fact that this uh, bill is being come coming so early in the cabinet's term kind of suggests there's been that they've discussed it at the very least, yeah. and uh, perhaps there's a. Do we think there's a kind of quid pro quo here, maybe, where uh, the the the, the Zestig get um, uh, get this one, but then the Chris and Uni will probably get their way on assisted dying, and um, you know because mm. they, they probably think they'll. I don't know. Yeah, uh, that is also an open issue, right? Yeah. So yeah, that just depends on how uh, the rest of the Tweede Kamer uh, thinks about this. I don't think there yeah. is a quid pro quo, but I, what I did read, I believe it was in the NSA, uh, that said that um, uh, Kees van der Staaij, the leader of the SGP, which is a much more orthodox uh, Christian party than ChristenUnie, uh, hmm. he is working on an uh, initiative bill um, that is going to... And I have to say this correctly, I think uh, it's calling for more education on uh, abortion, I believe. Um, So that also remains an open question. So um, uh, uh, the ChristenUnie can vote in favor for that if they want, even though uh, perhaps the other coalition parties will vote uh, against that. So um, um, there is a sort of quid pro quo because, you know, the medical yeah. ethical issues are open either way yeah 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 and with the, the, the education on abortion will that come from the same education publishers who uh, who take the dinosaurs out of the um <laughs> out of the uh, out of the geology books <laughs> <laughs> probably yeah. Uh, yeah that was also yeah. opf wasn't there um it was opf about that yeah 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 but, uh, I think that, you can see that's what's going to happen isn't it that every school will be allowed to decide what materials they use to teach about abortion so you know so schools yeah. in cities will probably use quite uh you know quite uh, will probably use materials just by sort of scientific publishers and schools in the Bible Belt will have a slightly more kind of, should we say, uh, sort of religious gloss to the... Yeah, um, which is to, already to, the case. Schools can already decide yeah. what to exactly, what they yeah. what they teach their students yeah. or not. The problem with what you just mentioned with these uh, uh, education book publishers was that, you know, they have one book which they are trying to sell to as many schools as possible and they tend, because of some uh, heavy lobby from the uh, uh, SGP corner to uh, you know lean more in their uh, uh, lean more their direction than than the others so that was that was the problem that that the children who do not go to a Christian Orthodox school uh, get taught the stuff that uh, yeah, called natural science from. yes yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah (laughs) if you want to put it that way yeah that's exactly (laughs) what happened Sports news. The Eredivisie has a weekend off, which is imposed by FIFA so the rest of the world can catch up with its international fixtures uh, that they had to miss during the pandemic. Um, the highlights from the schedule include Indonesia versus Timor-Leste. Uh, they've played each other twice. In fact, uh, the first game was this after, was Thursday afternoon. Uh, Indonesia oh. won 4-1, so hard luck Timor-Leste. Uh, but, but maybe they can uh, reverse their fortunes on Sunday. Uh, also, Kuwait versus Libya, that's on Tuesday, along with Uzbekistan against New Zealand. And at I 11 thought p.m. it was you can Dutch News, the Dutch News podcast, Gordon. You yeah, I know, but there is no Dutch sport because oh. these fixtures have um, put pay to the entire European football yeah. fixture schedules, strangely. Okay. I think what happens was FIFA sort of thought there'd be a huge backlog of um, you know World Cup qualifiers and things, but actually all those matches have been played, and now it's just a few kind of friendlies between countries that no one's actually 
actually going to watch. But as a result, all the European leagues have got the weekend off mm. to accommodate yeah. these pictures. I just thought it was odd. Um, Suriname versus Barbados as well on uh, on Tuesday evening. If you fancy that, fun. It'll probably be, it'll probably be on Eurosport because there's nothing else on. Yeah. Uh, back in the Netherlands, Ajax are back on top of the Eredivisie after their two-one win in Eindhoven. Brian Brobby scored the first before limping off shortly before half-time, and he's now out for six weeks after tearing a knee ligament. Mario Goetze swept in an equaliser for PSV early in the second half. Um, Ajax's winner was shrouded in controversy. No complaints about Nusa Mazurari's shot from outside the penalty area, but PSV argued that Daily Blint had failed to keep the ball in play during the build-up. But the video referee ruled otherwise, so Ajax claimed the win and are now two points clear of PSV. And at the bottom, Pex Fuller are starting to dream of a great escape after winning their last two matches, and they're now just a point behind Fortuna Sittard and two points behind Sparta Rotterdam in the playoff spot. And uh, yeah, one of the great Dutch Olympians hung up her swimming cap this week, didn't she? Yes, uh, Renomi Kromowidjojo has announced her retirement with immediate effect. Um, although she's 31 years old, she's still at the top of the sport and uh, winning medals, so the news came as uh, a bit of a surprise. But uh, Kromowidjojo won three Olympic gold medals, 17 world titles and 24 European championship titles. Uh, she had all three swimming diplomas by the age of four. Hmm. Uh, as a f- <laughs> so I only have so one. Yeah, I've, I don't have any, and oh. yeah, my, my kids have got two between them. Uh, so yeah, you don't have any swimming. Did you learn no, we, to we swim? We didn't have them in. Uh, you don't, in, in, in in other countries, we don't have swimming diplomas. Oh, like, is uh, it okay? It's a yeah. typical well, Dutch thing. Yeah, it's a very Dutch thing. Okay, having, especially the system of three, <laughs> three levels of swimming diploma. Yeah, well, I, I'm a triplet, and my father just at some point thought, yeah, I, I, I've brought my children enough to to swimming lessons. One one diploma is enough. Uh, right. Um, uh, he couldn't stand uh, uh, going through another two, no, six diplomas uh, with us. Yeah. So yeah, it's uh, understandable, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did Did you get anything when you uh, when you managed to get your swimming diploma, your air diploma? Did I get anything? Yeah, did you get, like, I don't know, uh, did you get ambushed by a cake? Or did you get, uh, <laughs> <laughs> or did you get, I don't know, a, 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 a model car or something, I don't know, just a, a, I, a, a, a present remember. or a treat? Probably, I don't know, I can't well remember. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, Cromwell uh, Joyo uh, was 15 when she won her first um, um, uh, swimming title. It was she was part of the winning 4x50 meters relay team at the European Championships, and she won her last title uh, a month ago at the World Championships in Abu Dhabi in the 50 meters butterfly. She says she's not sure what she wants to do next, but she's sure her experiences as a top sportswoman can inspire others. And uh, also, there's a nice bit of graphic design, I think, at uh, the Olympic Games uh, in 2012, because uh, Cromwell Ridoyo is a name with uh, five uh, letter O's ah. in it, so, which, of course, you can uh, then use to make the five Olympic rings. So that was exactly. quite nice. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's very nice. And there was some uh, Dutch success at the Australian Open, wasn't there? Yes. Uh, yes. Did, did, um, our, did our Dutch tennis player get uh, uh, kicked out of the country or, or not? No, they didn't kick it. No, they, did, they didn't get um, ejected for the country, and they didn't uh, also uh, get too close to Novak Djokovic and catch Corona. So that was uh, so two good things. That's uh, positive. Instead, yeah. Uh, yeah uh, Dida de Groot uh, successfully defended her title in the women's wheelchair singles. Ah. Um, so sixth um, Grand Slam title in a row she won a Golden Slam last year where she won all four Grand Slams and an oh, Olympic nice. title 
And uh, yeah, this this week she played an all Dutch final against her doubles partner Anique van Koot. Uh, they also won the doubles at uh, the Australian <laughs> Open, so they've kind of got uh, wheelchair tennis, uh, uh, women's wheelchair tennis uh, wrapped up at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, de Koot, yes, uh, so, so yeah, yeah, so well done to her. She's uh, won, uh, yes, yeah, so as I say, won last six Grand Slams and is pretty much invincible at the moment in uh, in the world of wheelchair tennis. Yeah, or orange podiums. That's 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 what we like to see, right? Yeah, orange podiums, full yeah. orange podiums. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. She's got a way to go to. Be, yeah, the, the, the Dutch are very strong in women's wheelchair tennis because, of course, Esther Fichier was uh, the dominant figure in the sport for about a decade. Oh, she won thirty right. titles. Yeah. So yeah, she's got a way to go to catch her. The Vrije Universiteit University in Amsterdam has taken its cross-cultural human rights center, the CCHRC, offline in response to criticism of its funding from China. Last week it emerged that the university received up to 300,000 euros over three years from the Southwest University of Political Science and Law in Chongqing. Uh, in China, several people affiliated with the CCHRC had defended China's human rights record in public and on Chinese state television. In a statement, the center said not all publications on the website of the CCHRC were compatible with its vision of the universality of human rights. Uh, we also want to check whether a sufficiently clear distinction is made between statements made on behalf of the center and opinions and observations made in personal capacity, it said. And for this reason, the center's website had been temporarily taken offline. The VU said it would no longer accept financial support from China and was investigating whether the funding had compromised its scientific independence. Students have been informed of any changes to their tuition, a spokesman told Nu.nl. Education Minister Robert Dijkraaf said in a response to the revelations by NOS that knowledge institutions must be alert to unwanted influences from other countries. The university was also criticized in 2020 along with the uh, Universiteit van Amsterdam in Amsterdam as well uh, for entering into an arrangement with Chinese tech giant Huawei I never know how to Huawei? pronounce that Huawei, I think, Huawei. Yeah. Huawei. Yeah. Huawei yeah. Huawei yeah Huawei yeah yeah <laughs> yeah in Dutch we say Huawei do you say uh, Huawei yeah. yeah yeah I don't know that uh, yeah. Chinese I don't know what's right I don't know what they say in cell phones yeah yeah um, despite warnings that the company was implicated in spying for the country's government. So, yeah, the, the, the universities in Amsterdam do not have a great track record in the, no. in, uh, in dealing with, uh, with China and with their uh, scientific um, independence, I think. Yeah, yeah, they, they seem a bit too willing to accept uh, the, the Chinese government's money without asking too many critical questions. Yeah. Um, We're yeah, and, and, uh, and then appearing on YouTube defending the Chinese government's uh, uh, interpretation of uh, what what's going on with the with the with the Uyghurs, which For is example, uh, should we say yeah. at odds with uh, most of uh, most of the rest of Western Europe. Yeah, um, and of course, there's also been Opefetachonia, um, where they've they, they've banned a lecturer from teaching class on critical thinking because um, yeah he he was uh, trying to convince students of uh, his uh, alternative truths apparently. So. Uh, I invite you to uh, elaborate on that because I yes, uh, please. <laughs> <laughs> I think I will. Uh, so it's a lecturer called uh, Tiet Andenka, um, who he is going to be allowed to teach other classes, but there's going to be an investigation into his methods. Uh, he ran a course called Systems View on Life, which is no longer being taught at the university, and uh, which sounds very. 
Sounds <laughs> sounds like something you should really need to avoid. I think it sounds like a sort of like, like a sort of low budget Jordan Peterson um, course. <laughs> frankly, exactly, you know, yeah. it sounds like you've basically just digested a couple of uh, Jordan Peterson's books and, uh, <laughs> and then turned them into university course. And he basically, effectively, he seems to be teaching conspiracy theories yeah. under the guise that he's teaching students how to recognise and uh, and engage with conspiracy theories. But um, mm. he seems to be saying a bit too close to the old conspiratorial winds. Uh, effectively so uh, I mean Ukrant uh, which is the university newspaper spoke to 12 students uh, about his lessons Uh, they studied feedback and correspondence about the course some of the ideas he wanted them to engage with critically were about uh, the dominant position of Jews in the world. Um, oh, so, right, of course. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Once again, it all, like all conspiracies, sooner or later it all comes back to anti-Semitism, and uh, so it is here. And mm-hmm. uh, his belief as well in uh, alternative uh, explanations of the September 11 attacks in the US in 2001. Um, there are also uh, references to vaccines causing autism, that old chestnut, um, mm. and the fact that um, yeah, d- 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 discussions about science uh, don't allow room for other opinions, uh, which of course uh, rather which unfortunately sort of uh, um, uh, uh, falls down on the on, on the on the slight problem that uh, science isn't opi- isn't an opinion. No. Um, so <laughs> it's about facts. Uh, there we are. <laughs> yeah. He was given uh, okay. an official warning when one student made a formal complaint, uh, but the university then, after um, investigating further, decided they were just going to scrap the course altogether so uh, Nandrika has uh, spoken to NSA he said he'll respond to the allegations next week after he quote more nuance and reality into the news cycle so again uh, reading straight out of uh, Thierry Boudet's book of uh, how to deflect (laughs) criticism there well thank you for taking over this segment because I uh wasn't aware this uh this was happening so uh, thank you for uh, (laughs) for explaining this to us that's all we have for you this week this podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We'll include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. And if you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. And you can also now back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl and earn yourself a free shout-out on the podcast. My thanks to Paul Peters, I'm Gordon Darroch, and we'll be back next week. Music.